welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy. In today's broadcast, I'm speaking with Joss Engerbretson, Portfolio Manager at Barwon Investment Partners, and he oversees the Barwon Disability Accommodation Fund. If you have any loved ones with special disability accommodation needs, or you've been following the SDA and NDIS news from the government, then I think you're really going to benefit from the insights Joss has to share on these areas. But for people unfamiliar with these schemes, Joss unpacks exactly what is the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the Specialist Disability Accommodation. He shares his thoughts on what improvements should be implemented in these schemes, what risks to avoid when investing in this space, and how they are investing in specialist disability accommodation, which is both favorable for their clients and investors. The fund's been around now for two years, has a five-year lock-in. The fund targets a total return of 8 to 10%, comprising of an income distribution yield of 5 to 7%. The fund for the past 12 months has returned 14%, with 4.85% of that being an income yield and 9% capital growth. Before we get into the podcast, I'd also like to encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to feed, keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgatty at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy it. Joss Ingebretson, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thanks, Murdoch. Thanks very much for having me here today. Good to have you on. So who is Joss and uh, how did you get into financial markets? Sure. Well, I'm uh, the portfolio manager for Barwon's Disability Accommodation Fund. Um, I have a pretty squiggly path into financial markets, which is probably a little bit um, less conventional than, than most uh, that find their way into into funds management. Uh, so I started out um, go firstly going to uni um, at Sydney University doing a combination of civil engineering and economics. And so I actually was a civil engineer um, for a number of years outside of uni. Uh, got more interested in the commercial side of real estate development um, and the real estate game. And so I actually moved, transitioned across into more of a development management style of role, so the commercial manager for, for real estate projects. But I, I moved across to a group called Ingenia Communities, which which many would be familiar with on the podcast um, nowadays. But back then, it's a much smaller organization starting uh, out uh, developing what's now called land lease communities or what we used to call manufactured home estates, which is was a, effectively a new form of retirement living to tra- challenge the incumbent deferred management fee model or, or rental retirement model. Uh, and that that sector has grown uh, quite substantially over time. And, and I saw it from both my time at Ingenia and then moved on to another ASX-listed group called Aspen Living Villages um, and was with both of those organisations as you know, cap rates in that sector uh, came down from circa 10 11%, right down to around about 5.5% where they are now. So was quite involved in... Uh, seeing how that new sector formed up, as well as other 
uh, adjacent sectors as well that both of those companies worked in, which was uh, caravan parks and uh, FIFO mining camps and things of that nature. So alternative style residential accommodation. Um, and then subsequently went on to uh, be the head of property for a uh, major telco and infrastructure business called BAI Communications, which provides all the backhaul infrastructure for ABC, SBS and Channel 10. Uh, and then went and actually studied my Master's of Applied Finance at Macquarie University um, and got more interested in uh, the, the kind of financial markets or funds management side of real estate and moved across to Barwon just over two years ago after um, you know prolonged a study of of the SDA market and how it was shaping up, and and came across Barwon, who who had actually just uh, themselves launched a fund in the specialist disability accommodation sector, which I work in now, and decided to join forces to build a an institutional grade funds management um, uh, uh, response to the specialist disability accommodation sector. So we've been investing in SDA for just over two years, two and a half years now. And uh, we've got a fund that's looking to be around about 80 million of, of GAV. Um, and so that's how I find myself here today. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting path. They always say that the best person to essentially run a factory is the person that's worked on the floor, right? Not just the manager coming in over top, but that sounds like the path that, that you've had. Yeah, it's been um, an interesting one. I mean, when I set out on my career, um, I always had that com- more commercial interest to me, um, you know, whilst, you know, doing civil engineering design uh, for large master plan communities and, and other projects was, you know, really interesting. Um, you know, I found that I was drawn more towards the commercial management side. And, and I think the ultimate evolution of that is being very close to where the capital comes from and, and being able to actually, um, you know, understand from the bottom up, like where al- allocating capital, particularly in physical asset class like real estate, you know, you've got to understand how these projects actually come together, what's actually going to work um, for the end user of those different types of, of real estate um, to be able to allocate capital well. So it's been a bit of a, you know, strange path, but I've been able to bring and adopt learnings across the technical front end through the project management, development management side, uh, and now apply them, um, you know, as a fund manager in the real estate space. Yeah, and I think it's you might have a um, for our listeners a very interesting um, insight from like I suppose the three main vantage points or where this interests a lot of Australians, which is you know um, if you look if you have a loved one or you are yourself you know acquiring um, you know a, a dwelling you know in the SDA framework uh, or you know the government stepping in you know providing a funding framework to actually get these things built, and then secondly, sorry, thirdly, the developers. Um, themselves you know seeking out to you know build these properties and obviously no one does anything without trying to make profit but you know there's always the good the bad the ugly inside that but yeah i would love to hear your thoughts on um you know how the well essentially the community within this particular um asset class um operates yeah well for the listeners that might not be so familiar with exactly what the specialist disability accommodation space is i mean it's a relatively new sector it's really genuinely only five years old so it's 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 still as a sector uh, growing growing quite rapidly but still finding its feet and at the end of the day it's purpose-built accommodation um, for people with uh, severe and permanent disabilities that have um, very high support needs or you know a, a great degree of functional impairment um, so it's for the the very top kind of circa six percent of uh, lower functionality um, under the NDIS 
And it's brought about by a rental stream that was created out of the NDIS, which is to incentivize the private market to build out this new dwelling category or, or residential asset class. And so, um, you know, it, it's very much, you know, caters towards people with, 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 you know, quite severe disabilities, but also, you know, you've got to take into account their, their families that are helping them make those decisions. But also, um, because these residents do have a high degree of functional impairment, they've actually also need daily care. So you've also got to think about how is that real estate offering providing um, a safe work environment? How are we making sure that that piece of real estate is near local amenities that carers can go and get a coffee or, or a sandwich at lunch? Um, and of course, you know, we've got, you know, it being a very new sector, you know, being only five years old, there's only about uh, 6,500 places or 6,500 beds built to date. And uh, from the current uh, metrics of how many need it, that's about 22,000, 23,000 kind of need it now, today, or have eligible funding. So we need to be incentivizing and working with developers um, to create, you know, viable, uh, profitable projects uh, that they want to go out there and, and do the hard work to find the land and actually build this product and, and build a good product um, for us who are going to ultimately own it over the long term. So there's a, there's a number of different stakeholders uh, in this space that you have to think about. You've, of course, got to think about, like any business and any real estate play, um, the end user, and that's our, our you know, customer-centric uh, focus here on the participant and making sure that we uh, enable as an independently independent and inclusive um, uh, life as possible. Um, the carers and making sure that, that that property sits within an area that can be easily serviced with care. Um, we've also uh, got the developers that we need to take care of here. So you've got to actually think about, a, a, you know, multiple different um, components of how to bring together an SDA property, which is which is which is good because I've kind of worn a few of those hats in the past, and it just helps you triangulate that. Yeah, so, with um, you, you were saying the other day that they had the uh, SDA SDA price guide review, right? Which happens what was it every five years? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, with that, um, do you mind giving just uh, an overview of the of the universe because this has been up and running for five years and if anyone's been reading the headlines you probably see headlines such as NDIS on track for a 5.7 billion dollar budget blowout you know changes to the you know the SDA scheme to you know hopefully improve this and I think I, uh, I was chatting to someone the other day that made a comment that uh, potentially if it continues on this course uh, this might uh, this particular scheme may become the single largest cost to Australians and the taxpayers um, going forward. So do you mind giving, um, uh, fleshing out what are the real numbers, um, what's actually happening within the scheme? And you also said that uh, you helped, um, you know, uh, make some suggestions on changes uh, with that particular review and some were adopted. So I'd be really interested in a year all about yeah. that. Yeah, well, that's quite a big... Um big set of questions to unpack but maybe if we just take it <laughs> take it back to the beginning of you know what is the NDIS because I think a lot of people's association with the NDIS is about budget blowouts and and that's much of the rhetoric that we we do see in the paper but let's maybe just take a little bit of a time machine back in time to why it even exists in the first place so 
Back in 2009, in that kind of era of the Gillard government, um, it was identified that we weren't uh, funding care services in this country very well for those with those with a disability. And so they did a number of investigations, found out, you know, the money is kind of going to waste or, or, or not being used effectively on just actually not getting good outcomes for those uh, vulnerable members of our society. And so they went and they said, look, let's actually flip the whole thing on its head. Let's turn it into a market-based system. So effectively, uh, people who, who have severe and permanent disabilities who may be eligible for this new thing called the NDIS will we'll do an assessment of their particular functional requirements, their level of disability, and we'll assign them a, a package um, of funding that they get to use to approach the market. So it very much turned it from um, you know the whole system on its head to a market-based system where a participant could go and find the care services that suited their particular disability um, and to create greater choice and control. And that was, that was you know, really started being rolled out in around about 2011 and then really started um, going across the country in 2013. <clears throat> and so jump forward 10 years to where we are now and we have 550,000 Australians um, who have uh, a severe and permanent disability. Just remembering for a second, there's actually 4.3 million Australians that have some form of disability, but the NDIS is designed for the 550,000 who are deemed to have permanent and severe disabilities. And uh, that that 550,000 um, of people out there getting uh, you know daily care, um, getting daily activities or receiving things like SDA, um, that directly employs, you know, estimates of around 270,000 Australians and indirectly many, many more. So, you know, it's a pretty big part of the employment and uh, and the economy at the moment. The last 12 months, I think the expenditure was around $34 billion or kind of in that number, which is obviously a pretty big number. Um, and that's about 1.5% of GDP, 1 to 1.5% of GDP. And so... Um, if you look at what's going to happen over the next kind of 10 years, the estimates at the moment, which is, you know, very much what, what people are alerted to, is that's growing to about $90 billion a year, uh, and which is around about 2.5% of GDP. And to give you a sense of relative scale, um, that's around about the same size of the agricultural industry. So, yes, it's a huge cost, uh, but it also is a huge employer, and there's actually a lot of GDP that comes out of that as well, both you know the direct spend, but then the, the follow-on indirect spend as well to all the support services uh, that sit around to member who's, members who participate in that part of the economy. So, yeah, look, the concern is from, from many people, um, you know, we're concerned about um, what, you know, what the budget is and, and how it's growing. However, um, what affects us in this specialist disability accommodation world isn't necessarily the overall budget, but it's actually the line item of SDA. So SDA is just a line item in the budget. Um, it was created in circa, you know, 2015, 2016. They identified that the NDIS was doing a really good job in terms of creating a market-based um, system for delivering uh, high quality services to participants. They're seeing a lot of great outcomes of the NDIS, and they. But what was what was happening is there was still about eight and a half thousand people, kind of under the age of fifty five, in residential aged care, which is you know designed for people in their eighties who you know might be in their their last series of life. Um, there was a whole bunch of people stuck in community housing stock. There was a whole bunch of people you know stuck uh, in in government housing that hadn't that wasn't modified for their needs and so they created this new line item of SDA 
And as at today, and, and kind of still from the beginning of this scheme, that was that that budget is around seven hundred million per year. But as a sector in SDA, over the last kind of twelve months, we're collecting about two hundred and thirty million of that. So the two hundred and thirty million that is the SDA amount within the NDIS is actually less than one percent of the overall budget. Um, and even if we were to be claiming the full amount, we're still kind of less than two percent of the overall NDIS budget. And I think that's really important uh, for people to reflect on, particularly when thinking about investing in the specialist disability accommodation sector, because we're such a small part of the overall budget, but also our, our residences cater to the those most uh, in need, the most uh, the most severe disabilities. And so if the government were to provide you know, sustainability measures, which they they will over time, much like they do, um, you know, most government programs when they get up and running, um, is we don't think they will get much of an efficiency dividend by, you know, taking on the smallest part of the overall NDIS scheme, which is actually for the for the most severe, um, you know, Im- impacted by their disabilities as well. So, you know, a vast majority of that NDIS budget is around the daily provision of care, um, and, and, you know, supporting the 550,000 uh, Australians, not necessarily the SDA component. And I'm sure there'll be sustainability measures over time. Um, but when you look through to the rhetoric is both sides of, of the uh, political divide um, or the aisle do actually support the NDIS. There's no talk of wholesale scrapping of the NDIS. But when you look through to actually what's being said, it's they're, they're saying we want to make it sustainable. Uh, for those who it was originally intended for. And everyone can see the benefits that the NDIS delivers. So, you know, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, we'll probably just see some slightly heightening of the barrier to get into the NDIS um, and maybe some some funding tweaks around the edges. But, you know, for those particularly in SDA, part of the, the cohort, um, we think, you know, that part of the NDIS will will, will continue on as is. Okay, so and then with the review, um, what were the suggestions um, that you made and that was taken on board? Yeah, sorry, I didn't touch on that. Um, so the SDA price guide review, so just to give people context, um, SDA uh, is increased each year by CPI. So the rents to the sector are inflation hedged in that way. So each year since 2017, when the scheme first came uh, into existence, we had CPI increases, which is linked to the March CPI. Uh, and each year, each of those five years, we had an increase. And then every fifth year, it's written into uh, the scheme or the regulation that the government undertakes what's called the SDA pricing or price guide review um, to basically check off um, the escalation in land and build prices versus the broader CPI basket. And so those on the call on the, or listening to the podcast today might be familiar with um, how much land and building construction prices have increased over the last five years, and it was substantially more than the broader CPI bucket. So they go away and they, they, they undertake a number of um, in investigations into land and building prices. I think they employed um, Ernst & Young uh, to, to, to help them out with that and do a number of technical reports. They also engage quite broadly with the industry at large. So, you know, everything from developers to fund managers like myself to SDA providers who actually, you know, manage the day-to-day tenancies of the properties. And they do a a really broad sweep of the market to understand what's working and what's not, you know, on top of just the the prices that need to be set at such a level to continue to encourage supply. 
And as part of that process, we here at Barwon did submit a discussion paper um, to the NDI just to say, hey, look, from a fund manager's perspective, this is what we're we're finding hard for us. This is what is working well. And, and here's a number of recommendations that, that we would make um, if you were, you know, if, you know, as part of this process uh, to make it, you know, easier for everyone. And so fortunately, a, a number of those recommendations did make it their way in there. This was things like, um, you know, clarifi- clarification or, or consideration of, of how GST um, is 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 uh, considered in in the terms of building these things and selling these things. There was a little bit of ambiguity around that. Um, making sure that CPI, um, when it does index, goes up on the first of July. So what used to happen is you would have your rents go up for the sector that actually wouldn't flow through to your asset until the individual participants' plan renewed, and that wouldn't necessarily be on one July. That might be in November, December, or March next year. Um, making sure um, that uh, there was more clarity around the participant demand and supply data or the or the dwelling demand and supply data, um, but also ensuring that there was a, a lower margin um, or, or, or a narrower spread um, between different lem- levels of funding packages. And so I'll just dwell there for a moment. So in the NDIS or under SDA, there's actually four funding packages depending on your your level of functional impairment or or level of support need. And so I won't go into all four, but in essence, what used to happen between the highest funded package and the lowest funded package was about 50-55%. And so when you think about building one of these properties or buying one of these properties, if you've got to buy the land, it's probably the same, whether it's the highest funded funded person or or the lowest funded participant. When you think about the broader structure of the building, it's broadly the same. Um, when you actually got down to it, there was probably a 15 to 20% difference. And so that kind of 55% difference in income didn't really make a whole bunch of sense to a lot of us in the industry. Um, so look, a lot of us must, put, must have put forward the, um, the, same, the same kind of um, suggestions, but they brought that, that narrowing of the highest of lowest funded down to about 8%. And that kind of had two major impacts on the sector. Uh, or at least our, our portfolio. One, it de-risked the assets that we already had. So we had a large number of our people in our portfolio were on that higher funded rate. And so there was always a possibility you might lose some of the higher funded um, category and then replace that with some of the lower funded category. So it de-risked the portfolio from that income reversion perspective. But going forward and working with developers, we would always have this tension between they, we might build it you know, expecting the highest funded participants to come to the property, but that actually might not eventuate and we might only be able to attract lower funded participants. So there was always this expectation difference around what the revenues of an asset might be. Well, bringing those substantially closer together made those conversations a lot easier now to the point where we're working with developers and they're saying, oh, we're happy to underwrite it just at the lower uh, funded participant level. And if you're able to get higher funded participants there over the long term, then that's okay, but it still works for us at the lower funded uh, level, which makes it, it much easier to bring on more supply to the market. And thirdly, from kind of a social um, perspective, it was it's now nicer to be able to offer our stock to a much wider range of participants because we don't have that, I guess, that tension around the level of funding gap that was that was previously there. Thanks for that. So that's the overview on the space. Um, how 
What's actually the strategy of bar one? Because uh, a number of people will be reading, you probably see it over social media. You know, there's a number of people out there. I, I get clients emailing me, go, hey, there's this new NDIS scheme. It's making 15% or higher, you know, um, you know, but I'm concerned that it's, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Is this actually a good idea? What do you think? Um, you know, what, what, in your opinion, um, you know, running this strategy and uh, what return, um, you know, should people be expecting, you know, from your portfolio or from these assets um, and where should these assets be located? Yeah, well, I'll go probably touch on, you know, who Barwin is and, and how we found our way to this space. Um, so Barwin is an institutional grade independent uh, fund manager um, based in Sydney, but with offices in, in Brisbane and Melbourne as well. Uh, we were set up in around about 2006 um, by the former head of uh, alternatives at Macquarie Bank, uh, Sam Armstrong, and the former head of real estate at AMP Capital, uh, Rob Morrison, um, and joined by their third partner, uh, Peter Connors. And so we've been investing on behalf of institutional uh, grade uh, groups, so you know, predominantly uh, super funds, other institutional groups, and, and high net worths. Uh, since that time, and today the, the the business has got over fifty people, and we we manage over three billion of capital on behalf of our you know institutional or, or highly sophisticated uh, clients. Uh, we're, we're we're wholesale or institutional only, and I think that's that's quite important. Um, and we've been investing particularly in in healthcare real estate for around about ten years. So that's we've got two funds in that space. We've got an institutional healthcare fund, and that's for um, and a number of super fund clients across Australia that has around 1.5 billion invested in, in healthcare assets across Australia. And that's your predominantly larger tertiary, tertiary or, or larger secondary style assets. So think large private hospitals. And then we've also got a, a fund which is more for our, our high net worth and, and sophisticated clients, um, which is around about 500 million. And that invests in predominantly GP uh, clinics and allied health clinics and maybe smaller day hospitals, things like that. So we've been uh, investing heavily and in directly in property for over a decade. And we've got around about $2 billion invested in that space. And with that, we've got a you know probably one of the largest dedicated uh, asset management teams in the country to managing those real uh, real estate properties. So, I mean, that's, you know, every, everyone kind of, some people think that real estate is a passive game. No, it's very much an active management game. And so... From that experience in healthcare, we had a lot of our healthcare providers, you know, talking to us and saying, hey, you know, we've got a large number of people with disability, um, you know, you know, stuck in our hospitals or some of these healthcare groups would have disability care provider arms and they'd say, hey, have you, have, have Barwon heard about this new sector called specialist disability accommodation? Because it actually really needs uh, an institutional grade manager to come to it. Uh, and actually uh, do this properly because, you know, like what you just mentioned, a lot of us were seeing, um, uh, you know, groups and, and Facebook ads and, and, and all kinds of things uh, promising, you know, crazy 15 to 17% yields, um, you know, with properties kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, people were really concerned that, uh, you know, that wasn't that, that type of product actually wasn't going to be the best outcome for participants. You can most certainly look at the SDA price guide and see how you might quickly want to derive a, a 15 to 17% return. And that's because you can go and buy the land really, really cheap somewhere and build a really, really cheap house. And, you know, 
on the back of a spreadsheet, you can create a 17% return. And and a lot of that did happen. You know, like any good um, government scheme, unfortunately, there was a lot of people that came out and thought it was a bit of a get-rich-quick scheme, um, and they, they piled into the sector. So when you think about, you know, what is that, how is that, you know, impacted? Well, if you look at southeast Queensland... There's roughly twice the number of SDA beds built than those with SDA funding, right? So that's a massive oversupply. And that's predominantly come from that property spruker, you know, into the self-managed super fund style of market. If you double click on Southeast Queensland and you zoom in a little bit more on a micro level, the majority of that supply is coming in on Caboolture, Ipswich and Logan. And what's the thing that kind of ties those areas together? You know, fringe, really cheap land, and a lot of people piled in. So, you know, that was un, uh, some unfortunate consequences that have come out to it. You know, we think on a on a kind of diversified portfolio level, and it very much aligns with with the government calculations on this, which are published for everyone to see. So, the government, ex- you know, really designed this scheme to have sensible, normal, kind of relatively risk-adjusted returns like you would see against other asset classes in real estate, you know, kind of in that 8 to 10% total return with a distribution yield of kind of 5 to 7%. That's that's broadly what the government has published of how they think about rent should be set, not the kind of double-digit returns um, that that have been promised by um, some groups appealing to that more, more of that retail type of investor and so that's you know what we've been building our fund to to deliver a big focus for us is is not trying to drive for yield or or, or yield on cost but actually solve for for occupancy and and minimizing vacancy you know a lot of that stock in southeast queensland is just not occupied because it's just just so much saturation whereas fortunately in our portfolio we've got 100% 100% or near 100% occupation because we make sure that we buy assets that are really close to amenity, have a good underlying land value, that are in areas deeply serviced by care, um, that are places that are going to attract and retain tenants over the long term. Because if you're solving for a 15 or 17% margin and you're choosing maybe an extra five or six kilometers out of town than you probably should be, well, someone like ourselves who have a different type of approach that kind of solving for the long-term sustainability of the asset, where we're happy for that 8 to 10% total return, we'll just go and buy a plot of land uh, and work with the developer to develop an asset right next to the shopping centre, right in town, and that's going to be much more attractive to participants over the long term. On the mechanics of that, you said... Um a number of things which are very interesting. Um, can we just jump into the mechanics? So uh, what's you said uh, target 8 to 10%. What's the average return for the past 12 months? What are you forecasting? Yeah, so the fund is two years old. So, you know, happy to talk around total return to date, but let's start on the last 12 months. So the last 12 months, we had a total return of just over 14%. And that was driven by around about a 4.8% income distribution yield, so real cash distribution to our investors, and a circa, you know, kind of nine and a half, nine to nine and a half percent capital return. Now, the capital return was was greatly supported this year by the SDA price guide review that we talked about earlier. So for for funding packages in the sector, we, you know, we had an average of 18 and a half percent rental increase um, this year. Um, You know, that was mostly... um, against the lower funded categories, as I mentioned, so bringing those up towards the higher funded categories. 
So our, our portfolio benefited, benefited from that, um, that increase and also we bought some assets quite well. Um, if you look at the kind of return to date, I think we're around about 7.5% total return, but we've got to remember the first 12 months we had lots of deposits out the door and, and, and kind of things not earning monies, which kind of dragged the returns uh, for the first 12 months. Um, we'd probably say the last 12 months is is fantastic for existing investors, but not a guide uh, going forward. We would expect, you know, again, that 8 to 10% return is our outlook um, with a 5 to 7%, you know, real cash distribution yield. So on the cash drag, uh, we chatted about this, um, you know, at lunch the other day, which was uh, very interesting. Um, how does, say say you spot an opportunity, uh, you want to pick up this uh, fund, you want to work with a developer. Um, do, does the fund, uh, do, do investors just allocate money to the fund, the cash builds up, then you go find an asset? Or do you go find an asset, then you open the fund up to invest? How does, the, how does it work? Yeah, well, when we originally set up the fund, it was a, a capital call structure. So investors would um, pledge a certain amount that they were willing to invest, and we, we called that down progressively. We've now deployed all that capital, and we recently put in a, uh, a major uh, bank facility, about $40 million with, with ANZ. Um, so we're well supported from a, from a debt perspective by um, Australian major banks. We ran a process and, and ANZ was the, was the winning of that, winner of that. Um, so going forward, uh, you know, a couple of acquisitions we've got in the pipeline at the moment, we're, we're using that available debt headroom to us and making sure that all acquisitions are, are distribution accretive. And then for future capital raisings, which we've, we've got a capital raising at the moment, what we're looking to do is, is just immediately unitize um, our investors against uh, acquisitions coming into the fund um, or pay down debt, um, uh, you know, small amounts of debt, but then use that debt headroom to immediately then re-roll into new acquisitions. So in terms of cash drag, there's a big focus on, on not having any cash drag in the fund. And so we'll do that by really man- managing the debt profile or, ma- or raising in time and in line with new acquisitions. And how long does it take to get money into the fund and uh, what are the redemptions? Yeah, so pretty quick to to get uh, money into the fund. So we've got a capital raising at the moment. We're looking at closing that around 8th of uh, December because these assets are... How much are you raising? Uh, looking to raise 10 to 15. That's the, that's the target this time around. Um, but we imagine that going forward, we'll, we'll probably do more frequent but smaller style raises. So around that 10 to 15 mark... Um, these assets are generally quite small, you know, an average ticket size of five to ten million. Um, so we want to be batching a few of those together together before we we do a raise. And so we imagine we'll just be doing those in more frequent um, installments. Um, so it's pretty, you know, easy to get the money in. In terms of getting out the money out, this is an open ended fund, but with close ended features. So the liquidity profile is there's a redemption window every five years from the birth date of the fund. Um, the birth date was May 2021, so the next one will be in May 2026, so about uh, two and a half years away from now, and then every five years after that. Of course, we do for, you know, really extenuating circumstances, you know, divorce or death, um, we'll try and help our investors if they need liquidity, um, but we can only offer that on really a best endeavours basis um, by matching them off against other investors that want to come in. You know, we do try and help our investors where we can, but um, we do offer those redemption windows as well if they want to redeem um, larger amounts of their capital. 
Okay, so uh, talking about the opportunity of purchasing these assets, um, how does it work? Does it like so I'm I'm in Lane Cove. It's yep. uh, you know I think Lane Cove just got voted like one of the most upcoming suburbs, right? So assuming say you have families or loved ones, you know someone's got someone disabled, they want to be close to home. Um, you know there's there's some assets around, but there's no real you know complete knockdown buildings. You know let's throw up I don't know ten you know, in one particular place, uh, you know, how would you go about um, exploring um, your product for Lane Cove as an example? Yeah, so I think there is some SDA actually coming up in Lane Cove, not by us, but by by others. Um, we, I was just out this morning looking at our new project in uh, Macquarie Park, actually, and we've, we've got 20 units um, coming up there. But um, typically, we, we start off at a very macro level. Um, the NDIA publishes really good data. Um, uh, it's not always, you know, the most reliable, but it's it's we take it as directional, and and it's pretty good from that perspective. So they actually um, do post where all the new supply is coming online. So there's a two-step process in in registering an SDA dwelling uh, within the, within the NDIS, and as a result of that two-step process, they have really good data about what's in the design phase and what's has been completed. And then secondly, because they've got all the address data of all the SDA participants, they've got a pretty good idea of generally where they live. Um, and so you can use that data to kind of at a macro directional level, um, first start to identify where are the major pockets of oversupply and where are the major pockets of undersupply. So we would start kind of there and, you know, you'd, you'd broadly say uh, the North Shore or, or Lane Cove area is is probably very undersupplied. Um by virtue of the fact that there's actually not a huge amount of new stock coming on there generally in the residential market. And if they do, the land price is, is very, very expensive. So probably to date, it's been a bit exclusionary from SDA. But if we did have a developer there that was looking to do a, a larger scale development, say three or 400 units, um, we would either get in touch with them or they would get in touch with us or one of our SDA providers or care providers uh, might know that developer or, or or whatnot, and they might approach us with an opportunity to buy um, SDA units uh, out of that particular development. So we would work with that developer to to understand what changes would need to be made to their project. So you know, all projects um, probably across Australia uh, need to be DDA compliant or, or you know, in line with the disability uh, design requirements. Um, but there's a an additional level to get the SDA standard. So we would work with them to figure out, um, you know, if we can get their building, if we can get these SDA units into their building. Uh, we would then work with them on the price point that we could afford to pay, um, you know, run that through our models. Um, and then basically we would contract with that developer or that builder um, to deliver us uh, those SDA units when they complete the project. And so that particular project would first require an SDA design certificate where we employ a specialist uh, sector-specific SDA assessor or certifier to review the designs and sign them off. And then secondly, um, after a series of inspections through the build, that SDA assessor will then sign off that it has been built to the correct standard uh, and then it's certified. Once it's certified, that package and that documentation goes off to the NDIA itself and they have a team in there that reviews the plans, reviews the certification, and actually then issues you a certificate of enrollment. And once we receive that certificate of enrollment, that's when we uh, acquire or settle on the property and start to 
to advertise it to lease it up. Well, in truth, we're actually advertising kind of six to nine months out, but that's when we have an opportunity for participants to actually come through the premises. And for this particular cohort or customer set, it was very similar to what I experienced in in the retirement living sector. Uh, you know, moving is a really big um, you know life event for for rent for many of us. Um, but you know, much uh, even though it's as difficult as it is being fully able bodied for those um, who who do have high degree of functional impairment who require very much on external service providers on a day-to-day basis, moving is a really big deal. So they want to look, touch and feel the product generally before committing to move in there. Um, So we'll often, if we can, negotiate a display suite um, to come forward um, so we can help those participants understand what they'll be moving into. But yeah, once we settle, we then advertise and and start providing leases to our tenants and hopefully uh, those moving in choose it as their forever home and going to stay with us for a very long time. Hopefully. So how does the relationship work with the developers? Um, do you give them access just to lending or you provide the equity piece? Uh, how does yeah, that work? Yeah, different um, approaches uh, for different types of developers and different types of product. So um, that that product I just spoke to where we might be buying 10 units out of a much, much larger residential development, we'll just enter into a forward purchase agreement, much like any person buying off the plan would enter into, um, that when that project is built, certified and enrolled, we'll, we'll then settle on the property. So whilst we don't give them finance, we do give them a, a contract, which they can then take to the bank as part of their pre-sales commitment to go and, and get financing. Um, for other projects, we'll buy them as going concerns. So a developer might have already built it, uh, got it enrolled, and they've actually actually wanted to uh, extract as much value as possible from the deal. So they've actually got it fully leased up uh, and then we'll look to just buy that off them. The third option we offer, um, you know, for our most trusted developers uh, is what we call a fund through agreement. And effectively, that's a finance to own structure. So a developer um, might have a project that we really, really like. Um, for some reason or another, they they don't want to go with a third-party bank. They would prefer us to finance the entire development. Maybe they don't have the 50% equity that would be required to do the development themselves, but they've got a really good project. They've got a good team around them. They've got a good builder in place, and we can go and review all this. Well, actually, um, uh, when they uh, achieve a certain milestone, which is usually linked to getting the appropriate planning approvals in place, getting the as-built certificate and getting a building contract, lump sum building contract in place so we have clarity on the feasibility of that asset, we'll actually then buy the land at that point and then finance through the rest of the construction. And so in that way, when they achieve you know, enrollment and certification and, and leasing up of the property, that's at the end of the project, we actually uh, pay them out a development profit. Um, but we also get to charge a coupon on all that money um, that we've provided for that project up until completion. And so in that way, we're able to pass all the development risk and the leasing risk to our counterparties, and we just get a a smooth um, return for our investors. Um, Considering the rates currently, um, what what would you charge on that money? Yeah, um, when you think about, we, we basically apply a similar way that you would, you know, look at it, the overall debt and equity for a project. So, you know, let's just make it for easy maths here, 50-50. So, you know, 
we would say 50% would be need, need to be equity. You know, development equity at the moment can range anywhere from 15 to 20%, depending on, on who you are or the type of project. Um, if it's a simpler single-story project with a, with a guaranteed takeout, maybe equity is a bit cheaper. Uh, and then if you're you're going to get debt, uh, you might have 50% um, at kind of anywhere between 7 and 10%, depending whether you can get a major bank to sponsor you or whether you need to go to a private lender. And so you kind of might multiply those two uh, together and, you know, you're looking at an all-in cost of capital, you know, maybe circa 12 to 13 sorry, 10 to 13%, somewhere in that range. Cost of capital is 10 to 13. And then uh, you you uh, take ownership of the asset and then lease that asset out to um, uh, the users within the SDA scheme. Yeah, so we'll charge a coupon somewhere in that 10 to 13% range for finance. So all of the capital, remembering in that fund through structure, the developer at that point, um, you know, has been paid back for the land. So they've got mm. all their money back out of the project. Um, so it's all then our money going into the project. Now we do have, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, overview and um, oversight and audit requirements on how that development's going, but the developer then takes all those construction time leasing risks um, and we charge our coupon in the background uh, and then at the end when it's fully complete we pay out the remaining development profit and then we've got a leased asset which is you know going concern that by that point and so we're just getting then the return that we've paid for the asset so once you have the asset and then you're managing the portfolio of these assets um what's the you know the hidden the un- the un- uh, ongoing costs like you know the number of these are strata buildings right you know um uh, I think we had a conversation about a, a, a friend of ours who essentially got hit with a very large bill because, you know, the balcony railings were, what, 0.8 of a centimetre, you know, below what they should have been. So now everyone's up for a very, very large bill, right? So who uh, cops that cost? Is it, is it yourself or is it the um, the tenant? Uh, well, it depends. So we've got different leasing structures uh, in this sector. Um, so we would have what lots of real estate investors might be familiar with, which is a, a triple net commercial lease style structure. Under that structure, um, there may be provisions or carve outs that the, any capex is actually the responsibility of the tenant, so not the responsibility of the fund or, or you know to our investors. And then we do have other types of agreements which are called pass through agreements or pass through leases. They're effectively management agreements registered on title which mean it's actually the fund's uh, responsibility if there was any capex or if there's any vacancy that we take that responsibility. If you look at kind of just an, an opex or ongoing operational uh, kind of cost of, of particularly the pass-throughs, um, you, know, you might expect somewhere in the kind of sense of 20% of the income uh, does go to property outgoing. So uh, that's both the property and the SDA managers who charge anywhere from 5 to 15%, depending on which group you're talking to. Um, and then the CapEx, we make allowances in the, below the line for CapEx. Um, we, of course, you know the majority of the assets that we're buying at the moment, the sector's only five years old, um, particularly, you know, it started ramping up. So you'd say the average age of an SDA is probably, you know, in the two to three year old kind of bracket. So these are all very new properties. So investors in in the early stages of this sector do actually depreci- um, do actually benefit from depreciation and and tax deferred nature of the rents. I think in our last quarter, 
84 uh, cents of every dollar returned was it was at tax deferred status. So you, you do have the depreciation benefits. But yeah, going forward, there will be, you know, CapEx like for any any kind of asset class or real estate asset class. And in some instances, that is for the fund. And some instances, it's actually for our, our tenants. But in all instances, we do actually uh, model that all in and make sure we're still getting our target return after consideration for CapEx. So it sounds like... Uh... You're running things quite well, but for even for yourselves, there's always risks, even if you're doing it on the conservative side. So where um, do you think the risks are for Bowen's strategy? Uh, the biggest and most obvious risk, which you know we get feedback from our investors on, is is just the government regulation risk around SDA and the NDIS. You know, as we talked about at the beginning of the call um, or podcast, uh, that the the SDA component, we feel comforted by the fact that SDA is such a small amount of the NDIS budget and SDA caters to, towards the most people who need the NDIS, that from an overall regula- regulatory perspective, uh, that SDA um, is protected. But of course, um, you know we can't give absolute guarantees around that. However, it's very much written into all of the information that's published about SDA that it is it is here to stay, and it has you know kind of at least a twenty year life on it, which is um, how we um, model our assets that so they've kind of got a twenty year life and then they revert back to existing stock. So that's probably the biggest and most obvious risk. Um, the next one is, you know, which, you know, I, you know, concerns me more broadly for the sector um, is, is what I call product obsolescence. So, you know, when you think about the iPhone, you, you know, when you go to get a new iPhone, you're never going back to the iPhone one. You're always going to what's the latest, what's the last couple of generations I can afford or if you can afford it and the budget, you know, in your personal budget is unconstrained, um, then you go for the latest iPhone. So, there will be more supply that comes into this sector over time. And so you want to make sure that the stock that you're buying and owning is going to last the test of time. So it's going to be attractive to participants now and it's going to remain attractive over the long term. So it can't easily be usurped by someone building an asset closer to the shopping center, closer to employment or or education opportunities. Um, You want to make sure that your, your portfolios is safeguarded for that increased supply that will inevitably come in over time. Um, now, the last one, which I was more concerned with, um, you know, prior to the price guide review than I am today was the income reversion. So what happens if you do have uh, assets that are full of, of higher funded participants and slowly over time, they unfortunately need to move on or move out and they're replaced with lower funded participants. Um, whilst we did factor into our, our modeling uh, income reversion occurring over the first five or six years of an asset to what we deemed a more sustainable tenant mix, um, much of that has been offset by this SDA price guide review. So that doesn't uh, worry me as much anymore. So those would probably, what we hear from investors is, you know, the regulatory risk, which, you know, is there, but we don't think it's so present for SDA, but also the making sure that we've got the right assets that stand for the test of time. That's, that's probably the, the biggest thing that we're focused on. Well, unfortunately, no one's been able to recreate Roman concrete. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, things like concrete cancer and, you know, the age of a building and the maintenance of that building. What what happens, you know, as this is being built for 20 years, these are all new dwellings being purchased, right? Yeah. But, you know, you just look at any every single suburb, you know, beautiful houses 30 years ago, they get old, you know, tired. Um, does that keep you up at night, um, you know, considering 
you know, yes, there's changes to the regulatory scheme, but you know the the dwellings will need um, in your portfolio rejuvenation in time. Like, how does that get factored in? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the very reason why we have um, you know the house view that that real estate is not a passive asset, and why we have built in Barwon a, a significant asset management team to help maintain and and improve our assets across all our funds. So across the healthcare funds, it's very much the same thing. So how do you make sure your assets um, remain attractive to the existing operators or, or um, you know, GPs who, who, who are there at the moment? Um, and how do we make sure that, you know, those existing, uh, those operators expand with us over time instead of moving into bigger premises? How can we ex- increase their footprint on the exam, on the same, uh, on the same piece of land? is a very similar mentality to how do we maintain our assets so that they're attractive to our NDIS participant clients uh, over the long term. So, of course, they're going to need, um, you know, upgrade and re- rejuvenation, but we, we factor that in. Uh, each asset, you know, the, how it works in SDA is they're actually enrolled for what's they're called the new build funding uh, for 20 years, and then they revert to existing uh, stock funding. And so, you know, when we, we think about that, we, we look at a few different scenarios. One is that they, they do return to existing stock funding and that rent drops by about 70%. Um, two, we look at, you know, maybe that asset is tied by that point and it would be better if for residents, there may be new product that sprung up locally and they might want to move across to that new new product. So then we have a, um, a certain amount of refurbishment to take it back to residential and then sell it on the market. And then the last option, which we we include in our analysis, but we don't rely on um, in terms of our performance or underwriting of the assets ahead of acquiring them is um, actually refurbing them and then getting another 20-year life out of them. So as at today, there's no mechanism in place to uh, basically recertify a, a new build dwelling and get another 20 years. It can only revert to existing stock. My sense is um, that that will probably change over time. The government, you know, in 10 years' time may say, hey, we're facing a bit of a cliff here where, you know, five to 10,000 residents are going to have to move out of their homes potentially over the next um, 10, 10 or so years. Do we really want to rebuild a whole, whole asset class again from scratch? Um, and there may be a scenario where you actually do a, a larger style refurbishment uh, and then release it out again for another 20 years as, as new build stock. Um, so yeah, you know, like any other real estate asset class, it's not immune from um, having to do upgrade works, but it's fairly low touch, um, you know, kind of in keeping with what you would see in other residential uh, properties. So with the coming year and the coming years, uh, as you said, you look at macro, uh, as in where you're going first, you've got to raise on as well, uh, with those assets, you're looking to pick up, where do you see the opportunity currently in the market? Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of the um, uh, magic that we don't want to give too much away and tell everyone all of our ideas. But uh, there's definitely places we want to, you know, be very careful on, and then very places, very, very other places that we're very bullish on. Um, you know, broadly, there seems to be um, a real push if you talk to the underlying customers that they want to have, you know, where possible uh, sole occupancy as opposed to shared. So they would prefer to live in a in a one bed. Uh, villa or apartment um, then necessarily have to share with other people. Now, the tension there is that the NDIA, um, because it's more cost effective to do so, would prefer to uh, provide shared accommodation funding. So that's kind of the kind of one balance that we think about. 
Um, the next is that supply-demand dynamic. So, so you know, northern parts of Adelaide, southern parts of Adelaide, you know, all, lots of parts of WA, stretches of, of Victoria um, we really like, um, whereas also all across New South Wales, anywhere that's kind of really structurally undersupplied. Um, and then there's these pockets of extreme oversupplied. So northwestern suburbs of, of, of Melbourne has a significant amount of SDA units. That's somewhere where, you know, we have the amber or orange light on. Um, and also, you know, that southeast Queensland example that I spoke to earlier. Not that we wouldn't go anywhere in southeast Queensland, um, but particularly places in like Caboolture, Logan and Ipswich, um, you know, we, we, we still remain um, very cautious in, in areas like that. So, Joss, with that, all that being said, um, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of the bed in the morning? Great question. Um, what keeps me up at night? Not too much at, at the moment. I mean, it, to, to date, the, the sector's been, you know, fairly well buffeted from interest rate rises, um, you know, against, say, other core asset classes that, you know, you know 12, 18, 24 months ago, you know, you were seeing really core Australian real estate trade in the kind of four and a half to five and a half range. You know, we were buying assets uh, in this sector uh, at a substantial spread to those core asset classes. So anywhere from six and three quarters, seven up to seven and a half to eight percent. So, um, you know, with with our cap rate substantially above the risk-free rate, we've been a bit protected um, from that, that you know, that, that um, support of cap rate expansion that we've seen in other sectors, um, which has been good for SDA. However, you know, if, if central banks um, continue to have to fight the inflation fight and, and keep, um, you know, ratcheting up further, you know, there will be at some level or at some point that will start affecting SDA. Today, we've been buffeted, um, but you never know what might, might come down the line. Um, the second is making sure, um, which is probably is the answer to both questions, is just making sure that we've got the right pro- the right property that's going to keep our tenants happy, and we've got the right uh, uh, care provider partners and the right SDA or property manager partners um, to keep make sure that our tenants are happy and, and want to stay with us. And so that's both what keeps me up at night. You know, it, we are dealing with a really vulnerable part of our um, society. We want to make sure that we're setting up. Um, real estate and, and agreements and and uh, systems and processes that those people are, are being taken care of. Um, but also that's what gets me up in the day because it's really nice um, to be able to go to work and, you know, whilst we work in this uh, fairly esoteric world of finance sometime, at the end of the day, the product that is actually being delivered on the ground is making a, a pretty substantial difference to not only that resident or that participant's life, uh, but also to their family. You know, we were we went to an opening of our High Wycombe asset, which is in Perth, um, earlier this year. And it was just fantastic to meet with the residents that were coming into that property, meet with the families. You know, you've got to remind yourself that many people um, with disability are kind of in that 40 or 50, maybe late 30s to 50 kind of age bracket, meaning their parents are in their kind of their 80s. Um, and, and very much are concerned about when they're not around, um, how uh, how their their children going to live and where they're going to live. And so it's really was really lovely to hear you know some of the relief uh, in the voices and, and the commentary around some of these parents that their their child is actually going to live in a really nice brand new property that they can be proud that their their child is living in. So um, you know, big focus on making sure that we've got happy participants is what, both what keeps me up at night, but also gets me up in the morning. 
You just jogged my memory. Uh, one of the questions we discussed at lunch was I found quite interesting. Uh, is it correct that, that there is no uh, financial limitations on um, what uh, someone can access as a property? Like you, you don't require a minimum income or, you know, your family doesn't mean, need to be incredibly wealthy to be able to apply for one of these dwellings? There's- yeah, correct. There's no means testing. No means um, testing, yeah. Yeah, no, no means testing. Um, it's very much a system set up around your um, your level of disability or, or level of impairment rather than your economic means or that of your family. I mean, the majority of 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 people um, who who have a who have a you know have a have a family member with a disability, um, you know, it's it's quite it used to be quite a large financial impact. Um, today, it's been much much made much much easier by the NDIS and and financial impact not only for um, the, the, maybe the specialist equipment they needed, but the time of work that was, re- well, time out of work that was required to be able to care for that loved one um, has a quite a, a large impact on the family. So it's great to see that the NDIS um, can actually uh, help support those families as best as possible and reduce that, that, that economic burden. But no, it's, it's not means tested. Yeah, look, it's it's been great having you on and listening to your thoughts because, you know, as we discussed earlier, this has been running for a while and there's, you know, obviously with any scheme, there's a whole lot of people that want to come in and, excuse my French, take the piss, but it's good to see that good operators like yourself are literally giving, you know, hope and comfort to families, um, you know, where essentially they can live close to loved ones, right? Um, it's it's a very good scheme, which is what's occurring. Um it, if anyone was to learn more about Barwin or, you know, the opportunity you currently have right now to access the investments you're looking to pick up, um, how are they best to um, find you and learn more about what's happening? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a few different ways. The most obvious one is our, our website, which is www.barwin.net.au. Um, a simple Google search is of Barwin Investment Partners or, you know, Barwin Disability Accommodation Fund. Um, we also have some videos on YouTube, um, you know, detailing our, our quarterly updates as well as some tours of some of our assets and even some uh, industry-style uh, podcasts and, uh, and uh, kind of uh, web- webinars that we've hosted as well where people can do a little bit of self-learning before um, getting in touch with one of our business development teams. So either Kate Haywood or, or Brett Scallon. Um, there'll be an opportunity to either get in touch uh, through our, our phone line, um, which will, which is on the website or on Google, um, or there'll be an inquiry form there as well. And, and one of our business development representatives will be able to get in touch with them. Well, Josh, it's been really good having you on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much, Murdoch. It's great to um, connect and, and chat here. And, and thanks very much for having me and all the best with the this great podcast of yours. Thanks, Joss. Have a great one. Bye. Thank you. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.